So hey, Wanderistas, Wanderellas, Wanderfellas, Wanderians everywhere. Welcome, welcome back to Wonderful. It's David Pearl here. I'm in Hyde Park in London, where it is cold. It's one of those lovely London days where the sun's out, rare, but, it, but true, um, and, uh, and it's cold. And I'm, in, I'm walking through Hyde Park, so you might hear joggers jogging past and the occasional atmospheric police siren. <laughs> the, uh, we've, we're recording this at the time of the COP26 uh, conference, so there's quite a lot of activism going on in, in this uh, island of ours. But welcome, welcome, welcome to what we call the Omnibus Edition, um, where we get to share with you some of the joyous bits that we couldn't put into the original episodes from this season. Um, Christmas is coming up, as is Hanukkah and various other festivals. And I'll be honest with you, the day I like best gastronomically at Christmas is Boxing Day, which is of course the day where you eat the leftovers. Not a very nice word, leftover, but um, in fact, in Italy they call it the resti. So I, I, my, my, my producer, Andrew, who was watching me like a hawk, um, we both think that we should call, we should think of the omnibus edition as the bestie of the resti. So it's the stuff that we didn't get to play you first time that we can uh, play you now. Yeah, before, we, before we do that, I just want to quickly say how much I'm loving doing this podcast for and with you. The thing I'm really enjoying is meeting these extraordinary people um, in these wandering conversations that takes us behind the professional mask. And let's face it, we, we all have one, a, a kind of face we put onto the world. I love, it's a sort of liminal space where between the public and the private, and I think there's, there's treasures to be had there. Um, and I just want to thank in advance all of our guests for um, allowing us to see them in their kind of unprepared state. That's certainly true of our first guest, our first uh, delicious uh, titbit, rest, piece of resti, um, and that's from Tracy Rubel. Um, I'd known Tracy through Sidewalk Talk, her, her non-profit, which um, conducts these extraordinary conversations between strangers on streets, uh, but I, I didn't know her until she sort of came into my life out of the blue, at high speed, on LinkedIn, um, and uh, as well as here in this, uh, in this snippet, um, she actually is maybe one of the world's best cold callers. Um, but the other thing you'll hear is the great thing about Tracy, one of the many, is that she's willing to let us and the world meet her in an unprepared way, uh, unvarnished and, and, and very, very real. Uh, even, I think, but I believe, without makeup. Um, so, so, so let's hear as we jump in, fall into a delicious conversation with Tracy Rubel. I'm good. I've been farting around all morning. I'm, I'm chillaxed. I'm wearing a sweatshirt. I don't have any shoes on. I haven't brushed my teeth yet today. I'm great. How are you? I'm the world's best cold caller on the planet. There isn't anybody better than me. And you know that because that's why we're friends. Because I cold true. call you. I cold called you. Mm. You did. And it's that kind of conviction. There's a sense we are going to be friends. We're going we're gonna to connect that powers your cold call. Yes. 
Yeah, that's what I got. I got this like, oh, there was a kind of, and it wasn't at all, I mean, it was just delightful. But it was just a kind of certainty about it. It's like, okay, yeah, this is definitely happening. To remind me of the story about the army. The Tommy <laughs> It was a great story. Well, and this is the thing too. When you cold call for a company, you really have to believe in their product because if you sell based on conviction, your product better work. And I remember once I worked for a company and their product didn't work and it was a nightmare. I was the most depressed I've ever been professionally in my life. But there was one company that I was working for actually where the CEO was um, that I had this conversation with and I loved their product. I totally believed in it. And so I could call anyone and I had the kind of relationship with my boss where he'd say, I was in grad school, so I was like basically just cold calling kind of several layers below my previous positions in tech because I was leaving the field. And so I just had this role where he'd say, hey, Tracy, I'm, I need meetings with these people. And usually it was like, I need a meeting with the senior vice president at Oracle. And I need a meeting with the CIO of the U.S. Army. And I need a meeting with um, the senior vice president at Symantec. And I'm like, Okay. And I said, give me a month, I'll get you a meeting with them. And that's just how it was. And I would network my buns off and figure out a way, but not cheesy. And so the CIO of the army, uh, it took me a month to get on his calendar. And he picks up the phone. And I said, hello, Lieutenant General. Oh, shit. I cannot remember your name. And I said, shit, too, which is not good form to a Lieutenant General of the army. And I said, okay, I just got, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I am nine months pregnant right now. You should see me sitting on my chair. It's going to break. I'm as big as a house. And he started laughing hysterically. And he said, oh, you're, you've got pregmentia. And I said, yes, that's, that's the word. So it, and then we were like, I could call him up anytime after that because we were bonded forever. So it's not a ruse. It's not a. It's not a. No. It's not a technique. It's a way of being. It's 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 a way of being. Yeah, yeah. And and when I cold called people and left them messages, I I, I often I never wasted their time. I never gave an elevator pitch. I always would leave a message like this. Hey, uh, Joe Smith, uh, I wanted to let you know that our senior staff is out briefing the X Y Z team on your campus next week. If you'd like us to come by and brief you so that you know what the other team's doing, happy to make that happen. See ya, Tracy. That's it. And I, I would always give them, I would call in once a month, never an elevator pitch, just an update of what was going on in our work with that particular organization. Yes, I love that, Tracy. Uh, a way of being. It's so great to hear people when they are kind of in their element, sort of living their true nature. Uh, I think that's a fantastic quality. Um, and it, when people have it, they, they can get a lot done, but there's a sort of no sense of effort from them. We'll hear from more from Tracy towards the end of this uh, bonus omnibus edition. But now I'm thinking about sort of positivity as an attitude and, and true nature. I want to introduce you to the coach, the, 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 the artist, the author, Keir Cannons, who is somebody who um, has sun, sunniness in her true nature, as she explained. It's, it's, it's almost not a choice. It is the way she is. That doesn't, however, mean she doesn't have 
the, all the problems and likes and dislikes in her life. In fact, she, she will explain a little bit why her sense of bonhomie and joy extends all the way up to broccoli, but not beyond. Yeah, I mean, I've just, I was really looking forward to seeing you today. I knew I'd come off the call with more energy than of the interview than, than than I came to. Is that, does that come naturally to you, Kia? Yeah, it's strange. My mum has been saying since, I remember like being five years old and her saying, you are literally, it wasn't a slice of sunshine, but it was something about um, sunshine. You're, you're literally like sunshine in the morning. And she's like, oh, you know, I wish that you would wake up a little later and not, you know, bomb into the bedroom at half past five in the morning. But I would always be full of energy, excited, and yeah, this I, over the years when I've been trying to figure out my zone of genius and those kind of things, you know, it just kept coming up that people are like, gosh, you know, you're just you've got this incredible energy. And I don't know whether it was you or, in fact, our mutual friend, Ben Hewitt. But um, one of you recently referred to me as having natural enthusiasm. Mm. I thought that that is that is what I've not been able to put into words. Yeah, I've just literally um, I, I was born this way. <laughs> Is that it's uh, why? Why does that fit particularly? Do you think the idea of natural enthusiasm? Mm, I think it fits. Yeah, it just describes the way I feel and literally my my state of being when I wake up in the morning. I mean, I I, like, I remember going on this coaching thing um, years and years ago, and so many people were confessing that they wake up in the morning um, not feeling good, like feeling negative, feeling sad, feeling frustrated, agitated. And, you know, we all had to kind of come away with something that we were, that we liked about ourselves. It was kind of stretching everyone, all the participants to, to move into appreciating themselves and talking themselves up a little. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, I suppose that's something I'm really, um, I really like about myself is that, and that I'm really grateful for, is that I wake up happy. And, you know, <laughs> life has not been easy on many levels, but I do have this natural happiness and enthusiasm for life. And that's presumably, doesn't mean there's an absence of sadness or worry. None. No, it's there. <laughs> but I choose, I, I, oh gosh, it's crazy. I've been like this since I was a kid. I, I don't know how I knew this, I wonder if I've had like a million lives and I've just learned some stuff and I've brought a bit with me this time. I don't know. But I have always known there is the tough stuff, but there's also the good stuff. And you get to choose what you focus on. Now, I wouldn't have been that eloquent at five years old, but that that's the space, you know, the energy that I have grown into that, that just was sort of there. What's tricky is that when I um, went through this whole um, lifestyle change, when I was um, diagnosed with an autoimmune disease two years ago, um, part of trying to reverse it and slow down the effects of it was to completely change my life, my, my dietary lifestyle. And um, it's not what the usual GP will tell you to do, but I see a lady who's a GP and a functional doctor. So she will try and treat me naturally and holistically if she can. But if I need a bit of medicine, like I do need a bit of thyroid medicine, then then she'll make me do that. Um, and so when we did these um, all these intolerance tests, I was a person that thought, you know, intolerance is a, I don't know, they're probably made up. Because most of my friends were making them up in the office to get out of having like cake when the cakes were coming around. Oh, I'm dairy intolerant, I can't. <laughs> so when I got my back, I discovered not only have I got those intolerances, the dairy and all of the grains, 
all of the vegetables and fruits that I had actually got there with, literally every single one I was also intolerant to. So <laughs> bye-bye bananas. I'd got there with broccoli, uh, pineapple I loved, uh, sprouts I'd even got to, and they all are on the, like, you are crazy intolerant to them list. So I'm starting from scratch again. Um, but but we're, get, we're getting there. We're getting there. We like tomatoes, <laughs> peppers, uh, if they're cooked. I've learned to, um, I wouldn't say love. I, do, I don't think there's a single vegetable that when it's in my mouth, I'm like, this is delicious, like the way it is if it's like chocolate. Your, your sort of nutritional identity is really deep, right, about mm. what you eat and what you like to drink. Mm. That must have been quite an experience. Yeah, it really was. When I when I went and got all my, you know, blood test results and everything and I was and she said, Oh, you know, you might be a few things you've got to cut out of your diet. Let's start with gluten and that was like crazy for me. Gluten? What? You know, that's I all I eat is glutinous foods. <laughs> How am I gonna survive? And then when I walked out of the doctors, um with this whole list of literally everything you eat, you cannot eat. And you've got to start with vegetables and like meat is kind of meh. And if anything, I would be quite happy to go vegetarian. But that really would leave me in a bit of a pickle with what on earth to put on my plate at the at present. I am learning though. Um so yeah, it was huge. I literally um had a bit of a <laughs> a bit of an Instagram breakdown. I've got a lovely audience on Instagram and I just went live and just shared like um I want you to see like the rawness of having to process something like this because it just feels helpful. I don't know. It just always feels helpful to be really, really honest and just share your journey. So you don't just show the, the brilliant bits, you know. Um, and yeah, it was really, really tough. I cried. I grieved for Chinese, for pizza, for cake. Um, I absolutely allowed myself a week of grieving what I couldn't have anymore. Yeah, I had to. I took it seriously, and then I felt released from it, and uh, and now I don't have I don't have any attachments to that stuff at all. It's amazing. I think we can all agree the ability to let go spiritually and as well as physically of pizza is something that is uh, truly heroic uh, beyond most of us. Kia, we salute you. Now, in our chat we talked about Ollie Barrett friend colleague uh, and great human and uh, I thought it'd be an opportunity now to drop into a bit of the conversation you didn't hear the first time with Ollie um, Ollie is somebody who I think of as uh, you know, quintessentially a people person he's at the center of an extraordinary network and community a friendship group of great people and he seems to thrive on that so I imagined that lockdown uh, would be really difficult for him I spoke to him just as things were sort of easing up and we were coming out of lockdown in the UK um, and surprise surprise it wasn't what I thought uh, Ollie is a great reframer as you'll hear and he managed to find uh, the gold in what was otherwise a really tricky situation for all of us. Ollie Barrett. Um, well, my, my instinctive answer, which might sound a bit crass, was it was wonderful, actually, you know. And, you know, pre, I'd been working incredibly hard. I'd been doing... <clears throat> lots of events. I always want events to be a string to my bow. I always joke that they could be the icing on the cake, but I didn't want them to be the cake. And I turned yeah. out with an, um, you know, an icing cake, which, um, which might be nice. 
for a few months. Actually, it still sounds quite nice, actually, doesn't it? Uh, but anyway, just give me the bit with loads of icing, please. And anyway, that's what had happened. Um, so, so in a sense, it was a relief. We played, um, without sounding terribly cringe, we practically played the glad game, if you like. Remember Pollyanna, where with every announcement, I would sit at the kitchen table and I'd say, well, first of all, this is a brilliant thing. You know, and I don't mean a brilliant thing for the horrendous things that are going on, but this news and someone very, very dear to me, and I'm, I'll, I'll say it's my, it's my wife, Verity. She always says to me, um, the thing about you is you're, you're, the, you're the great reframer, uh. you know? And, and, and I, I really believe in that as a thing, reframing. So hopefully, David, you and I might have had these sorts of chats and you've certainly helped me in this, but... Can you reframe something? So someone goes, okay, look at it like that. This is good. Yeah, This is a good thing, right? And I don't just mean let's become the good life and go and plant some radishes. But, you know, we, we moved house in lockdown. We had a beautiful baby daughter in lockdown. We went on a family walk every day mm. in lockdown. I mean, what, what, a, what a blessing. So anyway, that, that, you know, then it sort of gets into sort of, well, lucky old you, mate. But the, but the point is that there, there were some things there that we could be hugely grateful for and would, you know, may, may never happen again. Um, in terms of change, I think that there are a couple of things. I think that, um, just very briefly in terms of change, I think there's that Shakespeare line around, does not the appetite alter? Yeah. Yes. So I think there's a change of appetite. What are you up for? Mm. And I think if you reframe, then the appetite can change because mm. you say, I'm not craving those things because I have other things. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I realize that craving the gathering, the salon will upset me and make me sad. So I'm not going to crave them. So I'm going to focus my energy and my attention elsewhere. So, so there's the craving there. There's the appetite. Then I think very briefly, there's the, there's the taste. There's the palate. How has that changed? Well, I will discover as we go back into the world. And then I think there's almost like the social shock of um, getting back into stuff, the social stamina. And I think you could almost be tricked into saying, you're like, gosh, that cup of tea with my brother was exhausting. Um, (laughs) Maybe, no no offence to my brother, but you know what I mean? Um, You know, gosh, maybe I can't do this anymore. And then you have to ask yourself, maybe you can. Maybe it's stamina. So let's um, let's see how we ease back in. So so reframing my my tastes um, uh, maybe maybe altering as we go, but but realizing you know you know, you have have well if you're lucky enough to have riches on your own doorstep, then enjoy them. You don't come across to me as somebody that is erected a a, a sort of barrier of. 100% positivity between yourself and the world because that can be really quite unnerving. I've known people like that who will not admit to any downside ever. And you just feel like hang on a second, you know, human beings are like we're a bit like dolphins, we're supposed to go down and then up up into the sun and then down at the depths and up into the at least I think so. It's a dynamic mm. dynamic well, there. Well, there are two things and I've heard you speak about this in other episodes as well actually. Um one is around um I think there's one around exertion and recovery, which mm, is mm. absolutely crucial. You know, there's mm. no point going back out there with a the battery at 23%. It's not going to work, is it? Mm. <clears throat> so I think the other point on recovery, by the way, David, I saw a fascinating talk about the difference between um, fatigue and depletion in the sense that um, depletion couldn't be corrected by sleep and rest alone. Dis- depletion, whereas fatigue, you can rest and you will be recharged. Um, depletion. I'm, I'm borrowing. I'm wearing someone else's clothes here, but it just got me going on this point, yeah. 
which was depletion is more complex and requires restoration. Um, and the things that restore us could be nature, music, the company of people we love, um, you know, the great outdoors, whatever it happens to be. And, and that's very different. So I think finding those chances for restoration, not just rest, uh, for me is absolutely crucial. Um, I, I also think on the slightly more personal point, and I, I've sort of got these, without sounding terribly self-indulgent, I've got these sort of three layers. I'm outwardly very positive. Um, I then have this sort of middle fact that I can be grumpy and irascible and things will really wind me up. And, you know, my dearest friends would say, um, you know, oh, he can get really, um, really, you know, really a bit edgy about things. But then at my core, I think I do have a sort of, in terms of renewable energy, I think I have a positivity there. Um, And I don't mean being a good person or anything. I just mean I'm I'm a glass half full. Um, There is, though, this, uh, I don't worry, I will pause um, for breath, but you've got me really thinking today because in um, in Good to Great, Jim's Collins, he talks about the Stockdale paradox, which is where he talks about the difference between being positive and being an optimist. And Stockdale was, um, you know, a general in the Vietnam War in the concentration camp, and he's his point was that the people who died were the optimists, oh. because they kept saying, "We'll be out by Christmas." And they were never out by Christmas and they died. Um, he, he draws this distinction, which I really relate to. Um, I'm not going to say I'm an optimist because, frankly, having a pub or cafe argument about whether tomorrow is going to be brighter or not doesn't interest me. What interests me is having a positive attitude to it, even if you know that Christmas is going to be crap. I think we can agree that the pandemic has tested us all and our, our ability to to choose to see the, heart, the glass half full or half empty. None more so than my guest, Edmund Ford, who had a, uh, a major production that he had written, created, produced, and was going, to co- was going to star in at the Young Vic Theatre in London, had that tantalizing, you know, career-topping event canceled under him um, as the virus hit London. And I was struck uh, by his sort of resilience and his buoyancy and his ability to um, create his way through that. And I asked him here, uh, what was it about him that, that enables him to do that? And what advice, if you like, has he got for us, those of us who, who, who want to feel more creative and um, able to navigate the unexpected complexities that life throws at us. See what he has to say. When we were preparing for this, having a little chat, you talked about, for you, the differences between the people in the UK and the people in the US when it comes to promoting themselves. And Mm -hmm. I know there'll be people listening to this uh, podcast who'd be interested to know, who'd love, maybe they're in the UK or maybe in Europe thinking, yeah, I want a bit of what that guy's got. Uh, give us some advice about how you can get more, more of what you want done in the world without suffering and getting exhausted. Oh, gosh. I, well, as far, as far as exhaustion. Sorry, you'll can't help with that. <laughs> it's like, sorry. Um, I think with that whole thing about if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Uh-huh. I think it's more like if you do something that you really feel strongly about, 
you'll very seldom feel like your work is a waste of time. Yeah, no. <laughs> so yeah, I'll put no. it that way. I think as far as just straight up promotion, I mean, I'm I'm Christian, so I tend to go to a lot of biblical principles for some, for stuff. And one of those things is let another person praise you and not you yourself. Yeah, yeah. If there's anybody around, I think networking is kind of misunderstood a lot of times when people talk about, oh, well, you have to use your network and leverage your network. It's literally just as simple as calling somebody who likes your singing or who likes your art or who likes whatever it is you did when you did it with them when they hired you to do it the last time and saying, hey, I understand you know so-and-so. Would you mind affecting an introduction? Mm -hmm. Or would you mind forwarding them this link because they'll actually open it if it comes from you mm -hmm. as opposed to if it comes from somebody else? Or mm -hmm. there are things you can do that are non-intrusive. And I think the intrusive nature of what people presume network leveraging is all about often precludes people from, prevents people from actually doing the networking. And I think like here in the States, people have, it's a much more social media, from what I can tell, it's a much more social media driven mm -hmm. industry, especially in the last year when everybody, everybody has gone online with their virtual concerts, their virtual programming, their virtual whatever. And now that that's sort of played out, kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the remainder of that is the platforms that were developed during this past year that have continued and that have been promoted in what I'd call traditional media outlets for, let's say, opera. So people who've been fe featured in opera news, people who've been featured in the New York Times and whatever, from having created those platforms, that's the kind of stuff that will continue. But very few of those platforms have been as popular as those that are mentioned. So in, in the interim, people are just going on social media and posting their upcoming seasons and posting all this stuff. And companies here are really looking at it. In the UK, again, from what I have observed, <laughs> there is a reticence on the part of performers specifically to be as open and obvious about, hey, this is what I'm doing, come here, aside from just posting something maybe on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, but just directly approaching people in terms of, hey, I sang there last year, how about next year? Or, hey, that audition went really well and you were really complimentary. What can we work on for the future? There's much less of a thing there for that. And I think part of that comes from the fact that I'm not so sure the people who run these organizations are particularly open to being contacted like that. Yeah. yeah. So, and again, I'm not, especially not having really been in the UK for a year or so now, the best self-promotion as far as I can see in anywhere is just to be doing stuff. Mm. So if that means a self-produced concert, I'm, I'm really, I'm real big on self-produced self -produced stuff. So as you can probably tell, so <laughs> if it's a local church with good acoustics and at least 200 seats that does a chamber series, or if you're a classical performer, or if it's a local theater company that's been shut down and they're getting back open, but they're not filling all their dates because they don't have a full season yet. And you can get in there for a discounted rate and be able to present something preferably that you wrote. Also coming from music, like as of, let's say six, seven years ago, you have to be a writer. 
if for no other reason, then you need to get part of the you know publishing <laughs> on whatever it is that you've recorded. So exactly. So everybody is quote unquote a writer. If yeah, they yeah. contribute five words, if they contribute half of a hook, whatever. So, be so because that because that's my mindset of writing is for me fifty percent of performing at least. If you're an actor, if you're a singer, if you're a media, especially if you're working in any kind of visual media or recorded or um, filmed media, you got to write, write something, right? If it, if it's crap, write it, who cares? And then just get something produced. And especially if you're writing for yourself, if you can be honest enough with yourself about what it is you do that you think is fantastic and lands well with an audience, write to your strengths. Or conversely, write to your weaknesses and produce something that's going to make you get out of your comfort zone and into that other area that could expand who you are as an artist, but that you've never really focused on. I think, I think it's kind of a roundabout answer to your question, but I think yeah, it's beautiful. If if somebody if somebody else with whom you've worked who knows other people can simply send a text message, an email, pick up the phone and call somebody with whom you'd like to work. I think I would say that'd be avenue number one. And avenue number two is just produce it yourself. Yeah. Just whatever it is, just <laughs> write it, get somebody else to write it, uh, find some place to do it, talk them down. If they want 200 quid, talk them down to 100 <laughs> and just go ahead and do it. Just go ahead and do it, says Emma. That's almost like a should use that as an advertising slogan, just do it. Should... Andrew's nodding. We both think we're ahead of the curve here. That sounds like it could catch on. But yeah, what a great attitude. Especially at a time when, when it's easy to feel powerless. You look at the news, <laughs> unspooling before your eyes and feel, you can feel quite... Um, can I use the word impotent? Yes, why don't I use that word? Uh, one of those areas, the subjects that makes me feel, quite often feel powerless is is this whole vex question of sustainability of, of climate change, global warming, and so on. Um, and which is why my next guest, Sir Tim Smith, is, uh, has been a real beacon of hope and a personal inspiration for, for, for the last few years. He was gracious enough to uh, submit to a wonderful interview. Um, and there are a couple of things that we didn't, we weren't able to include the first time, but we'd love you to hear. And they're both rather uplifting, I think, uh, tales from that vexed area of sustainability. The first one is, is why Eden is boring. I know, sounds strange. And the second is an unexpectedly kind of optimistic and upbeat view of China and the Chinese government and their approach to environmentalism. Take a listen. Walking around Eden, there's a lovely exhibition or there's a lovely area that's all about coffee and, and, and so on. And this time, I didn't remember before, but there are chickens, not chickens, but partridge, I can't remember, but creatures running around the place. Again, yeah. do you, I mean, you must be known all over the world as Mr. Nature, Mr. Eden. Um, but you say things are dynamic. I noticed things are changing there. I saw what looked like drilling going on. And then I received, I received uh, the magazine saying things are getting boring at uh, Eden. Tell us about that. What are you planning? What are you drilling? Are you drilling for oil? We're drilling towards the center of the earth. 
tell us more. <laughs> it's a technology called geothermal. And every child knows that the center of the world is red hot, molten iron ore. It's the heat of the surface of the sun, six to 7,000 degrees centigrade. So if I say to any child, do you think it'd be a good idea to drill down and get some heat as a form of energy? They go, yeah. It's really simple. You drill down, you pour cold water down one pipe. It hits really hot rock, turns to superheated water, um, then comes up another pipe. And it either gives you heat, hot water that then heats things, or it gives you hot water plus electricity because the heat is so high, it drives a turbine. So ours is anticipated to um, give us 3.4 megawatts. Um, it will give us everything we need at Eden. We will be so carbon negative, we could bring all our visitors from Venus. When you look at our relations with China or China's relations with ours, I mean, these, these relationships aren't one way. Um, you might be tempted to think that there was a huge distance between us. Hmm. You'd be tempted to notice that there seemed to be a range of technological impasses between us to do with Huawei and things like that. You might be tempted to think that there is a war over trade. All of these things are, to a certain degree, saber-rattling. There are, I don't doubt, some serious issues within that. Um, and I know that I know there are. But you know, the weirdest thing is, the area where we have common ground is on the environment. Because mm -hmm. China, China has been a scapegoat for a lot of lazy environmentalism, where we talk about the per capita or national emission of carbon into the atmosphere. We talk about uh, that China and then India are responsible for a huge amount of the problems we now have. Well, very helpfully forgetting that we actually were right there at the beginning, starting the whole journey. It's a bit like a, it's a, bit like a relay race. Um, but what people forget is that China, in the big tapestry of history, China has, in a period of 50, 70 years, transformed a nation and taken 700 million people plus out of very significant poverty mm. and has created hope for them. We in the West have not done anything even close to that in terms of the way we have conducted our public affairs and citizenship. Lord knows I wish we did. And I think when I look at our friends in China and see that they will very honestly, they will look you in the eye and they will say, we know we have damaged the environment. But we were faced with a situation, there were so many of us, that we needed to be economically far more developed to be able to sustain ourselves going forward. And our, let's be honest, our one-party system and whatever, would not have survived a rebellion over material well-being. And in China, when you have that many people, you really do not want social unrest because so many people get hurt. Mm. Now, I think a conscious decision to take so many people out of poverty while betting on yourself to be good enough 
to be able to mend it later. You could call it hubris, <laughs> but you could also talk about it being betting on yourself. Mm. And what I'm seeing in China is a nation that's, what, 4,000 years old, that for two or 300 years feels that its world leadership has been usurped by us in the West, and it's about to go back to where its home was. They see it is utterly crucial, the sustaining of their sources, whether it's water from the glaciers to the fertile soil, and they know that their indiscriminate cutting of trees has led to erosion on a scale that is unimaginable. If you go down to the Yellow River and you see that in certain places, the Yellow River is on stilts 60 meters high, 60 meters high, because in the 20th century, nearly 20 million people drowned in the Yellow River Valley because that area is known as the loose, the loose um, landscape, L-O-E-S-S, which is friable clay. So you, it looks like mountainous. When you get there and you touch it with your hands, it crumbles to dust. It's astonishing that there, there are, amongst the indigenous peoples, you see people who actually live uh, uh, troglodytic lifestyles. They've dug out caves for themselves to live in the mountainside. But when you cut trees in that sort of environment and it rains, it turns everything into mud, which flows into the river. That's why the Yellow River looks, it's the most powerful river I've ever looked at. And it's the only river I've looked at and been frightened of. Mm. It has, when you look at the muscularity of the currents eddying, they feel, just looking at them, if you fell in there, even as a good swimmer, you'd just be sucked to your doom. And you're dealing with the people who've mastered water, who are now on the most extraordinary trajectory to repair the damage they've done. If I was to say that in 2015, 16, 2016, 17, 17, 18, 18, 19, and 1920, and it'll be the same this year, they've planted more trees than in the rest of the world put together. Just think about that. That's amazing. When you travel, when you travel from Qingdao, which is on the coast between Shanghai and Beijing, um, if you get the train up for about the first hour, you see nurseries. Wow. Every city you go to, there are trees propped up, big ginkgos, big, um, um, big Davidia and things like that. And you go, you know, maybe they can do it. Maybe they can do it. And now President Xi, has instructed that all state-owned enterprises will have environmental education. To my astonishment, I find that I am the the educator-in-chief for Jin Mao, who are our partners out there, who are a very big state-owned construction company. Um, but they're taking it really, really seriously. And the areas we thought we would be battling in terms of environmental standards, like building our own Eden project at Qingdao, they're just learning, they're sucking it up, absolutely sucking it up. So while it grieves me to see the state of the countryside in parts of China where I visited, the I am in no doubt whatsoever that not only is this a place where Britain and China can be great chums, but the will of the Chinese people, I think, will lead us rather than the other way around. I mean, bear in mind that 
the country that made more solar energy this last year than any other is China. The more wind than any other is China. Mm. To a certain degree, our friends over there are incredulous that we allowed ourselves to to elect politicians that did not see the enormous potential of solar and wind earlier to enable us to have world-leading businesses that could have been suppliers rather than them supplying us. Mm. Um, And it is a question that makes you ask whether we as a civilization in Britain and Western Europe are tired now. We're tired that actually youth is dripping away from us and the middle-aged men that run us, their kind of treacly certainties are going to bog us down so that we go into the swamps. I know the uh, subject is complex and there are many people that disagree, but I like, I love Tim's attitude, which is that uh, we can be chums. That's not a headline you see very often, Um, but it is an attitude. It's what I think of as a creative attitude. And we can can argue about the problem, we can admire the problem and find hundreds of ways to describe it, or we could get on and like Tim um, create something, Eden projects around the world, or, or whatever the equivalent of that. Before we leave Tim, I just wanted to there was a there was a piece we spoke about that really touched me personally um, as a musician. Tim's a musician as well. He was a rock musician before he became a sort of world environmentalist. Um, and he, we were talking about improvisation. I run an improvisation company and. Street wisdom is, in some ways, an act of improvisation. It's, it's, it's welcoming the unforeseen into your life. And this, um, this podcast is an improvisational quality. You ask Andrew as he, as he tears the script up <laughs> with, with frustration as I wander off, as I am now, uh, into a little, a little sidebar thought. Um, but one thing we agreed about Tim and I was that there's that moment sometimes in performance especially improvisational performance where you it's it's like you're, you're no longer singing you're being sung it's like you're keying into something that wants to happen where the the audience becomes the performer somehow and it was it was profound for him and and I think there's profound insight there for us take a listen That's really interesting. I, I was talking the other day with some friends about great concerts, and I, I, I've, I've been lucky enough um, to see some marvellous concerts all over the world. But I was describing a day at Glastonbury, I think four years ago, when Florence and the Machine replaced the Foo Fighters because Dave Grohl had got hurt or something. And... Florence had been to Eden two years before as a support band and that she was doing fantastically well, a marvellous performer. But the thing that struck me when I saw her on the Pyramid stage um, with 100-odd thousand people seeing was that there was a kind of, and in case she ever listens to this, this is not an insult, it's just the impression was almost of the Nuremberg marches with Hitler. It was music being done to the audience. Um, And after the gig, uh, I um, walked up to, I think it was the John Peel stage, but I I wouldn't put my life on it. 
to see the proclaimers. There must have been two and a half thousand people in a tent. And it was one of the most extraordinary concerts I've ever been to because they came on stage and from the beginning to the end of the concert, the audience was the concert. It was like uh. it was like the music was being drawn out of us, that they were the bards of our inner souls. That And talking about happiness, I don't think I have ever been at a concert where wherever I looked, even people you imagined to be the shyest mice you'd ever seen, they were all singing, released by this thing. And it felt like a joyous act of ensemble, as you put it, with um, the conductors being the people, you know, who were the band. It was an extraordinary thing. And it just made me think about the degree to which great compositions are some of them are, if you like, spiritual, above ourselves, drawing us up. And others are earthy things, you know, you know, un uncovering the mole in our soul, you know, bringing them to the surface. And they're all, all of those things are great, you know, but it was a very, very special, uh, special moment. Like I say, that, that, that touched me, what Tim was saying there, and... Uh, inspired me, as indeed have genuinely all of my guests on this season of Wonderful and uh, and actually the previous season. Um, meeting them in this way has been a joy, and it's something I wanted to end on as we as we as we enter this what's hopefully a celebratory period for us all as, as the year comes to an end. I wanted to circle back to, to Tracy. Uh, and share with you a little conversation we have. We were talking about something that's dear to both of our hearts, which is meeting. I know for a lot of people, the word meeting summons up, you know, deathly hours spent in meeting rooms. But um, I'm a huge fan of, of the act of meeting. And actually, I think it's more important than ever. Human beings coming together, sharing, listening, sharing stories, creating new stories, um, and, and being together. And, and Tracy knows a lot about that. She's through Cyborg Talk, she's, she's uh, met and learned from strangers all over the world, as have her many volunteers. Um, and I'd just like to hand over to her to talk a little bit about the power of meeting and how uh, it sort of nurtures both, both the stranger and yourself, um, as indeed this podcast have. So, has. So, so over to you, Tracy. Uh, to take us out. But this idea that authentically meeting something um, is the starting point is really powerful. And I guess that's what's happening in Cyborg Talk as well. It's, it's not just two people meeting, it's two people meeting an idea or an experience or jointly, jointly witnessing something. So yeah, I appreciate you getting that because I feel like it's the hardest thing to get across. I'm like, look, I don't know how to convey to you that this isn't about being of service and listening to that lonely person. And of course, that's how the marketers want to twist it around because that's easier to consume. But it's a practice. It's like meditation, but relational meditation. Can I meet you? And can I meet myself in this encounter? And can we cultivate that into a practice that's consciousness raising? Can we cultivate this into a way of being that becomes more in vogue than all the doing and self-optimization and selling and 
extroversion and marketing and you know, Amanda Ripley has this phrase that I really love. She she calls it uh, conflict entrepreneurs, you know, because it's really, it sells. If we can create a lot of conflict, it sells. Totally. Can we do something different? Totally. Can we do something different, asked Tracy. And the answer is yes, we can. I think that's that's an unequivocal yes from us, the wanderers of the world, the creative explorers, the curious. Um, and that's what Wonderful's here for, remember? To give us all some inspiration on the go. We've never needed it more. And I just want to thank you for joining us for this season. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And to look forward to the next season when we will get together yet again. Don't know where. We'll have a hunch when. It'll be early in the new year. Um, to do some more wandering together. Wandering and wandering. Until then... Have a happy holidays and uh, keep it wonderful. You know, I, I, I joke around all the time. I said, do you really want to change yourself to fit into this fucked up sick society? Are you sure? What's the motivation for the change? You're going to edit out fucked up, right? Because you can't say no. that on the podcast. No, no, no. Totally. It's my <laughs> podcast. Totally. You can. You can find out more about these mindful walking techniques at streetwisdom.org, a global non-profit founded by David Pearl. Street Wisdom is an everyday creative practice you use as you walk to help you unblock your mind to find clarity and inspiration. Why not follow us at streetwisdom underscore for free guided in-person and online workshops you got it. Walking workshops. You can also download our audio guides on Spotify. Just search for Street Wisdom. Happy wandering! <laughs>